is Swampside Chats, the podcast where, every week, Kami sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down with Amir from the Cold and Dark Stars blog, developing an idea from three of his recent consecutive posts, beginning with the decline of science, the decline of capitalism. This is part one of a two-part conversation. All right. We have here probably my favorite blogger right now. He's a science writer from the blog Cold Dark Stars. We have Amir. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I'm really thankful for you guys having me. Thanks for coming on. You reach out to us, which is crazy because <laughs> we're all fans of your blog. And um, I think you put out some of your most ambitious posts recently. But I guess before we get into that, maybe we could just get into like the general concept behind Cold Dark Stars. Break it down for us. So there's two things I'm interested in. First, I'm interested in communications. I want it so that socialist and Marxist theory is understandable to anybody who has a good reading comprehension, you know, like a certain educational background, like at most a college bachelor or something equivalent gain from autodidact education, you know? I don't think theory should be in such a way that you really have to have a master's degree or a PhD to understand it. I think like if someone is educated enough, they should be able to understand it. And the other thing is that I want to revive, you know, Marxism or socialist theory in general as a scientific research program. Granted, this is just blog posts, but a lot of it is just my own notebook. Maybe later on I'll do something more serious, but I'm trying to like brainstorm right now and maybe in the not too distant future, do something more serious with it, right? So those are the two motivations, I think. And the other background is that, I don't know. So I've wasted a lot of time procrastinating and shit posting on <laughs> and Facebook. So I might as well like do something with my shit posts so that they are actually readable to more people than just some like Facebook wall or something. Uh, I was going to say, it's funny just because sometimes you come up with your best ideas when you're just arguing with some random person and something you kind of take for granted, some random you know person on Facebook starts questioning you about it. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, you're not taking it for granted as much. There actually is you know, a utility to the Facebook debate form as awful as it can be. That's how I feel it too, you know, and before that, like the anonymous message board form, which I actually, I find more palatable, but I don't think it exists as much anymore, but some people hate on it because they say it's not serious, but I don't know anybody anywhere else to get immediate feedback on what I'm thinking. I don't know. I'm not like a snob about the internet. I think some people are, but there, there's not really no reasons to be like a snob about it. You know, like that's just part of it. You can do other shit as well. You know, that's not your only. Well, it's just people shooting the shit. Like, People are going to say dumb stuff sometimes just because they're, you know, kind of thinking out loud. And, you know, it's kind of a place where you can do that and get feedback from other people and in the non-serious setting. I can't, I don't understand being a snob about this. This seems entirely yeah. backwards to no me point. because, no, 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 it's not even, there's no point in it. It's like, it, it's backwards. I remember being a, you know, Marxist, right? 
thinking that I was getting somewhere with the people in my meat space life being like, oh, I guess I'm learning some things. This is interesting. Then I go on Facebook and some drunk guy with a illegible name is spitting some abuse at someone I've never seen before, but also is doing some like high secondary tertiary level debates on political economy and like the peasant agriculture and like medieval Germany or some shit. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, I, I like, there's nothing like that in my everyday life. <laughs> like there's no arena where we can go spar about mid 18th century political economy. It's just, it just doesn't exist. That doesn't exist in my life. I don't, I don't live in, in a university. And even when I did, the, the level of debate was still higher because Marxism isn't actually like allowed in the parts of the university. Oh, yeah, university that, is, is that matter. <laughs> Which People, is why, like, is why they, they, they only look at Marx as like, oh, he's the guy that Foucault was, you know, better than. He's the guy that <laughs> Foucault replaced, basically. That's how yeah. um, it basically was when I was a history graduate student. Yeah. Even so, Foucault would laugh at that. Yeah. I mean, there is also, in defense of the snobs, there is a lot of stupid bullshit, you know, in yeah. the mix on left book as well. well. Of course it is. Of course there is. But, for example, to me, like, pamphlets were shit posting. Like, pamphlets were not, like, high fatuline theory or anything like that. Like, people wrote letters and pamphlets because there was no, like, internet or something like that. For example, the other day I was reading about... René Descartes and his correspondence. And the way it worked is that he just was in correspondence with all these like aristocrats and nobility that had a lot of time. So they just like send like snail mail about mind and body duality. And <laughs> I don't know really, but, but like, if you, if you see it, you think like, oh, like it's so sophisticated or whatever. But no, it's like, it's not a book form or anything. It was literally because there was no other way. I don't know. I remember about correspondence he had with this princess or something and the princess will like call him out you know say oh you're wrong on this you know and then they had this like snail mail debate and i thought it was really cool because i don't know there was no even academia at that time as we understand it you know so anyway oh yeah it's just like some of the best like stuff for marx is basically just him <laughs> ranting for pages against sterner or Proudhon. Like by large parts of capital are essentially just Marx ranting against Ooh. Proudhon, you know, chiding LaSalle or Babel or whoever, and just like explaining them like why they're idiots and wrong and like saying well, stuff that he won't say quite publicly. cheerful though. Yeah, but and more than that, like whenever there's a vagueness in Marxism, and there is frequently, the letters end up being like these decisive interpretive lenses. So we're turning to the shit posts and looking at who he's screaming at and why to figure well, out what he meant. <laughs> it's because I think in the letters, it shows us a lot how they actually politically think in the heat of real concrete situations. So I think that's one reason the letters of like Marx and Engels and Lenin, et cetera, are so interesting. But the problem is when you have Facebook, people aren't writing letters and pamphlets anymore as much, and they're using all that mental energy to shitpost. And so, yeah, I think it's important that we do you know, have actual blogs and stuff where we actually yeah. try to put this energy in a creative direction. Yeah, because I, I have a, like a blog project around the Marxist research program as well. But, you know, my life is nuts and I'm not like very disciplined right now. So I de definitely feel you on the, okay, I'm just doing this for now. Maybe it'll be something serious later, but, you know, hold on. Just give me a moment. <laughs> 
So Cold Dark Stars is outward facing. And in the words of one of your titles, it was like, uh, the left needs to fight a culture war for science. This is something we've kind of been grappling with. We just read, for instance, uh, Ted Kaczynski, right? And the whole background of the post-left and the decades since has a lot in common with like the later attitudes of Bordiga towards science where, and it's something you describe, actually you have overlap with when you're describing the decline of science, the diminishing returns of science. And so a lot of people are very pessimistic about science. They look at its cruel aspects. They kind of lose the Hegelian sense that this is something that we can appropriate back. Um, they feel the same way about technology more generally. Um, in particular, the big networking technologies that make a world system. So I think in the context of dealing with the dregs of the 90s post-left, and even some of the best Marxists we're dealing with are in that universe, right? Like the idea of fighting a culture war for science to them, you know, is a nightmare of instrumental reason. They just don't get it. Like, <laughs> I just finished reading Helena Sheehan's Marxism and the Philosophy of Science, which was just a phenomenal read. It's really fascinating how in the 1930s you had all of these scientists who were either members or fellow travelers of the CP who were doing groundbreaking science but were full believers in dialectical materialism and were debating each other about, you know, the nature of dialectics. And then you kind of have another trend in Marxism. It's like more, I, I call it almost romanticist, kind of like the Lukashian, like Guy Debord, like Wardiga types who are just completely like, critical of science and see it as pure bourgeois ideology. But then you have like this whole other tradition in Marxism that's kind of been forgotten. It's just not talked about enough of Marxist scientists who thought that you know, there actually was like an actual scientific usefulness to dialectical materialism, for example. So there's like a couple of threads in all of that. First, there's the sociology of it that, you know, like for historical reasons or sociological reasons, the same people who like don't like science in school or something, a lot of times end up as Marxists in the West for whatever is the sociology, political economy. Resentment. And there's that. So like, it's not even a resentment. like, no, they cannot engage it because they don't want to make the fort of understanding like the natural sciences, for example. Then there's the other one that I think, and it's the one that's very interesting to me too, is that a lot of critical theorists, you know, since the 60s, they have gone about how science and scientific reason has been used to dominate humankind, you know, and also to colonize and how this whole idea of trying to dissect everything with a microscope and manipulate it also is related to this desire to dominate, you know? It's not completely wrong. I don't disagree with it. I think it's a tendency. Yeah. The problem is that there's always like black and white. Like, uh, and that's, I, you know, I hate that word, but to use the word, like it's not very dialectical, you know? Yeah, it's true that even science as we understand it today, like it rose with capitalism. What we understand like science is very new, you know? It's related to the political economy of capitalism, but let's put it this way. Yeah. like. Science has been used, you know, to like a very commonly set example is like racial science or it's new iteration where all this like, I don't know, I fucking hate this. Like these guys that like look at IQ or something and then like try to correlate it with race. And I don't know that. Uh, bell cards. Yeah, like people are me at bad capitalists because we have low IQ or something. 
So like the other thing is that how many people have been cured of certain illnesses? You know, how much our scientific understanding of, let's say, sexuality and gender has helped for the gender rights? You know, how much technological development is related also to certain gender rights too? Because if we see, you know, like older forms of production, you know, like rural peasant agricultural modes of production, like the patriarchy, like there were some really shitty gender dynamics. And I will say that in general, worse than Western capitalism. Some people will say that's not true. There's the liberatory aspect that needs to be seized by radicals while the dominating aspect, the reactionary aspect rejected. I don't know why it has to be like either one thing or the other. It's not either or, you know, and scientific understanding used to dispel certain religious myths that at least in the 19th century were used to dominate human beings in the West, you know, like society is too complex so that it's not, so that it's just either A and or B. That's what I'm saying. The right wing has produced kind of like the logic bro where the people who like love capital are reason and stuff like that. But they would like it not because of its own like intrinsic merits. They like it because they think it is the caricature that the anti-rationalist left have of scientific and instrumental thinking, right? So it's like the left is like, it's a phallocentric discourse. It's, done, it's used by white men to dominate the planet. And the right is like, yeah, I know, it's great. This analytic of hair splitting, like sometimes certain things cannot be like analytically chopped in a very crystal clear way. So for example, let's use ideas of causation. So sometimes B is not caused by A, nor A is caused by B. Both of them cause each other. And that's understood in science, you know, like the idea of feedback loops, for example, in climate science, which is one of my favorite fields because I think it has a lot to offer to society. For example, global warming melts the ice caps, but at the same time, the ice is important because it reflects the sun to outer space. So the more it melts the ice, the more heating involved because as the ice melts, the earth heats up more and then the heating of the earth up melts more the ice, you know? And science is repleted of effects like that. So this like right-wing bro idea of like, oh, you know what? Economic wealth is a function of IQ or something. You know, like that's this unidirectional projection of cleanliness and rigor, but it's actually like ideology. It has a certain pull because these ideas are already kind of embedded in society, right? And so all you have to do is like offer a hint that yeah, it's correct. correct. And then... It will, have a, it will have an attraction to people. Another interesting point made in Sheehan's book is that this one British scientist, I think his name was Codwell, Christopher Codwell, he was talking about how the scientists he knew who were more well-versed in history and philosophy and studied other, you know, forms of social sciences essentially tended to be more left-wing and better scientists overall. And once we're more specialized in like a very specific field and cared about nothing else, we're the, tending to be the more reactionary ones, which I think is uh, one of the problems of that kind of bro logic kind of way thinking about science is kind of just thinking about science outside of the totality of historical and social determinations. So that bro logic, you know what it reminds me of? Like, I think a lot of it is like this. Precocious Jews that probably like have high cognitive capacities but haven't read anything that wasn't assigned in their class, you know? So it's kind of like you see it with like, even when it's not like that, like, oh, women are not in science because women's IQs are more 
congregated, that's the common bro argument that are more congregating in the, of the distribution except the extremes. So they say like, oh, you know, you need to be genius to do a science or something. But what happens is that you take little bits of things you already know from your classes and then you mix them together, but you don't try to question what you got in your class or read outside of it. That's why there's like the STEM bro caricature. The last political example is, you know, this whole theory of incels and chats and stasis or whatever. It's like super precocious dudes that just watch anime and read memes. So they don't have like theory. So they their mind is overactive, so they just make connections, you know? Um, yeah, that's that's the entire Jordan Peterson form is just like he'll make these most insane, like spurious connections with very little to back it up whatsoever. But you know, people eat it up because it confirms their previously existing prejudices and you know it has like a kind of simple like implicit one-to-one -one reasoning mm -hmm. i mean carl jung is definitely more popular now because of jordan peterson which is you honestly fun. should clean your room though i don't i don't want to clean my room if uncle ted tells me to clean my room i will yeah he kind of did <laughs> Only if, only I wanted to say something about people who are anti-tech, actually, speaking of TED. Um, I feel like they're kind of blaming the administrative arrangement of capitalism and the way specialists and that kind of shit works here on modernity and technology itself. When when Marxism is trying to change all of that and, and, and how that works in everyday life, in communism, we can all be a scientist in a certain way. Yeah, technology and planning and administration gave you the knocker weapon, but it also gave you public health care, public education, all these public institutions that, I mean, you have to put your Foucault hat, like maybe you'll say like, that's the way they dominate humans, you know, but at the same time, you're like a reactionary if you're against public health care, you know, like, I don't well, know. Yeah. That's the whole point is because it's saying, oh, it's just power relations are shifting. And it's like, well, yeah, it's true. Humans are still dominated and exploited. So it's basically just denying that there's such thing as progress, that history can have any kind of general direction in a better way. But basically, it's a denial of the very notion of progress, I think. And I don't know. That's also a very controversial idea. I got involved that by professors for saying the word progressive. But that almost kind of sounds to me a little bit broish and sexist to say that, because what about, like, fucking abortion on demand or or, like woman rights you know like is that bad or i guess you could be like a cynical bro and say oh it's a way to incorporate women into capitalism as cogs or something but like it's not either or you know like it's both things i mean good. that line of like for example i was just saying the american civil war was overall progressive but and this guy you know he's a big anti-racist like cultural theorist guy and he's like the word progressive just isn't a good word to use for things in history but it's like I don't see how you could argue against that, you know, I don't see how you can say the abolition of chattel slavery wasn't, you know, progressive and that it was just, you know, even though blacks are still oppressed in the United States and were oppressed, you know, more heavily after the Civil War than they are now, doesn't mean that there wasn't progress to the abolition of slavery. I, I don't know. I think I could, like, maybe push back against the notion of progress, not in the sense that these things are bad or that capitalism is necessarily bad, but it implies like a teleology that like is incredibly limiting and doesn't really account for like real history. Incredibly limiting when you well, take into account like revolution and counter revolution. 
Well, if you have, if you have political goals, you're going to have a teleology. Kaczynski just thinks that juice is worth the squeeze and we just have to deal with it. Yeah, I guess women might have different things happening in this society that they have, that they never had before and treatment in primitive societies might be really abysmal. But in general, like humanity will be less warped. So it's just sort of worth it. There is a sort of broy logic there. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> I mean, you want to avoid like a crude stagism, but if you do have political goals in mind and you are partisan, you are going to see the trajectory of history as going in a good direction or a bad direction, progressive or regressive. I mean, let's say that, I don't know if this has been established with the fact, but let's say that there is a general development in human history to develop the productive forces to a certain level, not necessarily on a, a capitalist line, but there is a um, universal tendency in capitalism to develop the productive forces. Would that be like a teleology to history, for example? The way I see it, it's not so much that like a teleology of progress, it's not so much I believe in that, but that history has a directionality. You know, it's not just random things. There's a trajectory, um, there's a trajectory in capitalism and you can empirically prove it. You know, for example, a very basic one, you know, like the proletarianization of the humanity, how it became almost total, you know? And, and there's all these laws that progress. For example, in, in Cold and Dark Stars, I once wrote a, I don't know, I was going on some like Hegel trip for a couple of months and I was yeah, reading yeah. him and about him. And I, I wrote an article trying to like parse what I, I, I learned. And one of the things I like about Hegel is that he thought that you can understand history by thinking about it. There's a rational structure to it and you can understand it by thinking about it. And uh, like someone else said, if you want to have a political project, you have to have this idea that history is intelligible and can be understood, at least, not 100%, but at least some trends. Because otherwise, like, how, how can you have a platform without knowing where history heads and what would your platform do to change that course? You know, the elite, the state, the military, the capitalists, they would think history is intelligible. That's why they have the IMF. That's how they have this partially planned capitalism because they have the, an idea of what they think where history is going and that's how they impose their own like vision of the world, you know? And if leftists don't think history is intelligible, then there's no plan, there's no project, there's... I don't know, I don't even think what it is, you know? I guess it just... Yeah. I don't think I was trying to argue that history has no like direction or motion. What I was specifically going for with like the argument about like being a teleology was like specifically like assuming that the progression of the forces of history is necessarily a good thing. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. I think there's potential in a lot of it, but I don't think it's a necessarily a good thing that we have a massive surveillance state coming out of higher forms of technology. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, but that would be an example of like technology progressing in a way. I agree with you actually, but the way I see it is that, as I said, it's not, there's like various streams in this direction. Some of them are bad, like you said before, before. you know, there's like, like you say this, this tendency for this technocratic slash administrative domination that is part of the gigantic surveillance state that we have. And that's one direction, you know, but there's also another threat, you know, and the threat of taking people out of the land and, uh, you know, creating this um, 
not always, but a lot of times in agricultural forms of production, because of their inner dynamics, they tend towards the patriarchy, you know? And so there's various streams. Some of them are bad, some of them are good, but it's not either one or the other. You know, they all go together. The general dynamic of capitalism has the capacity for both a progressive and the regressive side. You know, and it's not necessarily inevitable that capitalism will lead to socialism or barbarism. It's just that it has tendencies that under certain conditions perhaps can lead in either direction, if that makes sense. For example, another strand of capitalism that was really bad is like, you know, the destruction of First Nation communities in the North America and the horrible genocide entitled that underwent it. And you could say like, oh, well, if you're really cynical, you could say, oh yeah, but that had to happen. Right now they're better off, but the problem is that they are not better off now. You know, they're like probably worse off, you know? So that's like a trend that was really bad. And sometimes this idea of looking at different directions and trends, uh, you know, they use that example. They say, you know, like the, the bloodbath that was the colonization of the Americas and the consequences that we live in today for some groups such as First Nations. But that happened and that was really bad. And that was probably inherent to capitalism in some sense, but there's other trends as well. That trend was bad and nobody's saying it wasn't, but the problem is that to say that it's either completely good or bad. I think the more scientific approach is saying there's directions and some of them are progressive and not regressive, like you said. Yeah, this brings me to your theory of decline. It's a sort of version of a decadence argument, I think, yeah. um, that you've been uh, working on over your last three posts in particular uh, that I've been recommending to people. Check out these last three posts. They kind of weave what I think is a pretty convincing version of decadence theory. And this is something that I've been like chewing on. One of the best things that I've read in all of, you know, left comery or whatever was this theory communist and off-haven debate. Those are two obscure journals for listeners like these, these are like obscure ass ultra left journals and that debate broke them up but the whole thing was trying to figure out if decadence even makes sense anymore and was there really a cycle of diminishing returns that we're in that is is qualitatively different than capitalism before or was it really kind of always like this yeah it's, it's basically the idea that it's almost like the spanglerian like ascent and decline of civilization as a cycle and capitalism had an ascendant cycle and now it's in its decadent cycle and so in its ascendant cycle it was progressive and needed to be supported and now that it's in its decline and it needs to be overthrown and so it's kind of a uh, an overly dualistic almost it's almost like a black and white kind of way of looking at it i think that's how i've always felt about it I'm glad you referred to that because it's actually like some of my favorite posts for myself again, which aren't necessarily the more popular, but those are the ones that I like the most. I actually was really critical of theories of decline and more obscure ultra-left theories of decadence. That's why I partly call it decline of decadence. I was skeptical about it because like the way I would read it was always really hard-fisted, like Donald said about, you know, like, oh, there's an ascendant heroic phase and you support it and then there's a... a the client face and you don't support it, you know? And it's always almost like quasi-moralistic approach to it. But after a while, you know, I started 
believing in it again, because the way I was thinking of it is instead of starting with Marxist categories from the start, it's just like there's just this empirical secular trends decline, you know, like you can look up the empirical data, you know, like even bourgeois economic think tanks, like they have fucking graphs of productivity declining across all the industries, you know, and then how that correlates to many other things like this like ascendant phase of financialization of capital, how the real economy cannot valorize capital as fast. For example, a firm, like nowadays, like finance capital is very important because you as a firm might not have enough funds, so you have to get a loan, you know, and that's literally why financialization is a thing because like a lot of the times people want to start a company or someone wants to make an investment, but there's just not enough like cash flow, so you just take a loan. And it's kind of like this weird, almost like distributive mechanism of capital so that you inject all these firms with loans and stuff so that they can actually valorize capital. But it almost seems like because the the real economy itself is declining in productivity, you, you kind of have to kickstart it with injecting it like magical computer money, you know, all the time. And so there's all these trends. And another one that's, I'm actually writing right now is like the decline of voting for the working class. And to me, it's related to the theory of decline because you have all this like almost petty bourgeoisified, let's say American middle class that are in essential small property owners because they are injected with all this fictitious capital in order to be able to buy a house or something. But in that sense, home ownership creates an illusion of having a stake in the system, basically. It's not necessarily just an illusion. It's just like, because there's this fictitious like lifestyle, this level of lifestyle, this quality of lifestyle that at least empirically turns people who maybe in the 19th century will have considered proletarians into effectively small property owners, you know, because that's what home equity is, you know? You get like basically a quasi petit bourgeois, um, but that's related to the decline of capitalism because you get all these guys are just being injected with, financial capital simply because there's no real economy that could sustain it. So you have to keep injecting fictitious capital to this middle class that also this ties them to the GOP and to the left party shifting to the right. And so what ends up happening is that the poor people do not vote. And then this middle class that is petty bourgeoisified votes, but they're a little bit reactionary simply because they are small property owners, you know? No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, yeah, that's home, uh, home, I, I home, home ownership breeds some of the most reactionary people on the planet because mm-hmm. so much of their fortune is basically invested in like how much their house is worth on the real estate market. And so, yeah, like those are like some of like the like, nastiest, most reactionary white people that you're going to get. Exactly. Well, I mean, the thing yeah. is suburbia and the whole concept of the single earner household, you know, in specifically white was created by you know the post-war period and during world war ii this was a very specific social formation that was created by the state and you know enforced by the state almost because i think it's literally an anti-communist measure it was uh the the motto was no any man who owns a home doesn't have time to be a communist and the idea was literally to depoliticize the working class because they figured if everyone owned their own house and had their own wife and kids they wouldn't have, you know, time or interest to go to communist party meetings anymore. Yeah, and it refers to a set of trends that Engels was aware of. And Engels was better on the United States than Marx. And so his writings, he has like a classic quote where he's just like, 
Yeah, there's probably not room for a workers party until like you run out of land in the US to yeah. Also another thing with like suburbia was it was basically like where the white people went when like the cities became too black essentially in the north. It's basically an all-round haven of reaction because you have like that anti-communist element of home ownership keeping them from having economic imperative for communism as members of the proletariat. And you also have that coming in as they were fleeing from the cities to get away from the black people. Exactly. It's the same time you have the trend of blacks in the South moving up north into the cities is when suburbia starts coming in. So it's also related to racial dynamics. So there basically is this whole petty bourgeois layer of society it wants to seclude itself from brown people and sees itself as small property owners and can kind of just basically be seen as a gigantic cesspool yeah. reaction. To reel back a little bit into decline, I don't know, I guess I'm not a historian, but from the limited understanding I have history, like I think ascendancy and decline of civilizations is almost seems like an empirical trend in many civilizations. You have like the Roman Empire, which is everybody's favorite example on, on Olympian theories of society. And then and now there's capitalism. And one of the things that inspired me a lot is that there's this guy who is, he's not like a socialist or anything like that. He's just some like academic, you know? There was this guy I was reading about, uh, I talked a little bit about it in my blog, Joseph Painter, and he's an anthropologist and he has this theory of increasingly expensive complexity of civilization. So for example, he argues that civilization of the Roman Empire, which I don't know, sounded right to me, like you have this civilization where you have this increasingly more expensive complexity, but he has this almost thermodynamic view, you know, like the lab produced so much calories and then you have this increasing complexity that was originally developed to solve problems. Let's say, for example, in earlier civilizations, you know, irrigation was a thing. And that created this very ancient this created this like complex layer of quasi specialists who deal with creating the engineering behind irrigation and maybe they are not like peasants anymore you know they don't work the land or something like that or at least not as much so but the problem is that this complexity increases but there's almost diminishing returns as the complexity increases so you find a problem and you try to problem solve it but you have to create all this complex layer to solve it but now it's there and it's expensive so I see it the same with capital. That's why you have financialization, because there's this increasingly complex complexity that just the real economy cannot sustain. So you have to keep injecting at it fictitious capital. So that's why, to me, like financialization is part of the theory of the decline of capital. And it's not a new idea. Like Fichting, I'm sure a lot of the guys know who he is, but like to tell the listeners, you know, Fichting is just one of those heterodox Trotskys who have this alternate theory of the Soviet Union, which is linked to his theories of decline as well. But he also has this theory of capitalism in decline as related to financialization. So that also was an inspiration. My real problem with how a lot of theory of decline is used is that it's used to basically assert these invariant political positions that are just derived from a basic periodization of history. And the way, you know, how the ICC does it is every position they take on a political event starts with, this is just a sign of the decline of capitalism. And so therefore the trade unions and everything comes, it's used in a completely politically opportunistic way. I don't see it that way. I think there is some truth to the, that capitalism has a life cycle. A you just don't like the ICC. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, basically, I don't like the idea that you can cut it evenly. There's an exact date where like it stops being yeah. progressive. Yeah, I don't see that as that at all. And actually, I don't think that there's a difference between theories of decline and terminal crisis. Like the Communist International had almost a theory of terminal decline because to them it was like, these like ham-fisted theories of decadence are very old. Like, like the Communist International had some of them and that's why they, they call that era the era of wars of revolution, you know, because almost like capitalism was almost in this terminal phase, you know? Yeah, but exactly. Like it made sense to have that position perhaps even because there was this huge imperialist war and there was real workers' movements resisting it and the revolution that happened in Russia and then failed revolutions elsewhere. To say that we're still in that era today is, you know, just absurd, basically. I don't see it as this mechanistic, like, algorithm to generate political positions. There's no way to forecast the final phase and say, like, oh, you know, because there's absolutely nothing good is happening anymore, ergo, I'm going to have this super millenarian extreme politics that are waiting for the second coming of Christ. You know, I don't believe in that. I think it's more like the dynamism of this mode of production just kind of slowly peters out. There's some political conclusions you can derive from it, but I don't think they are necessarily that black and white. For example, one thing I see is that financialization as being, in my opinion, related to the kind of capitalism has certain political implications. One of them to me is that one of the things I dislike about mainstream social democracy beyond the politics is that this electoral strategy they have that literally, I see this in Canada with the NDP, you have, you know what's the likely guy that's going to vote, which is probably to use the British joke like a gammon, you know, like a, a person with home equity that might be like kind of reactionary because those people love to vote because they have access to grind about taxes and shit. So in Alberta, which is governed, province I live, which is governed by the NDP, one thing is like oil industry, you know, and there's almost this quasi Bonapartist like oil doll society of all these guys just having these really high wages because of the oil industry and stuff. So that makes them kind of reactionary because it also leads to like access to financial fictitious capital that makes them become essentially like small property owners, etc. So to me, like leftists need to politically activate people who don't vote, who are actually the guys that leftist program will appeal to, not the likely electoral voter, but the this existence of this reactionary middle class, in my opinion, is also related to financialization because they have this small property that's entirely based on like fictitious capital. Yeah, that's basically what an electoral strategy for a viable, you know, socialist party or workers' party would have to be would be to somehow tap into the sentiment that the people who don't vote have. And I think that that, that would be a process of repoliticizing civil society. The DSA people all want to do that, the Democratic Party, essentially. Like, yeah. There's like the current, you know. The problem is you do need to have some kind of like financial base for a political party. The closest thing you used to have with the working class is the unions. But because the unions were basically sort of integrated into the system and kind of bought off, they no longer really exist as a base. You know, I think you do actually have to build unions and win support in unions, I think, to have a modern day proletarian politics or whatever. Or just make a really, really bitchin' GoFundMe. <laughs> if the growth of finance capital, I think it means that finance capital as a sector of capital starts to have more power over the state. Policies that the state takes are going to be more favorable to finance capital, which are essentially deregulation of markets. 
And so the neoliberal era represents um, this domination of the state by finance capital. Where in like the post-war era, you had a compromise between the labor bureaucracy and the uh, in state. But now it's more so by the financial sector of the bourgeoisie. I don't think politics can make unions come back or, or re-leftist unions. Is that the goal? I, I don't know. For me, I just think just general unions. I'm not anti-union either. I'm just kind of, I don't know. Let's, let's move on. Sorry. Yeah, there'll probably have to be like a slightly deeper level of immiseration if we're going to bring back unions. But there's one thing I actually want to talk about, Amira. One thing that's interesting is that this theory of decline as a result of increasing the unsustainable levels of complexity and like the social system you also extend this to like science education and even to healthcare to a certain extent i was wondering if you could talk about that for a little bit yeah that's a very good question so there's this philosopher of science called imre lakatos well called because he's dead but he was also a marxist from what i understand he was a stalinist or something like that and then he moved to one of those snob universities in the uk like oxbridge but then, like, his academic friends found out that this guy, like, I don't know, sympathetic to Stalin's terror or something back in the day. Akatos, yeah, he started out as a communist, many kind of abandoned yeah. Marxism, Leninism, and said it was a degenerate research program. But yeah. then later on, he kind of, like, said that he thought Trotskyism had the possibility of being a progressive research program. But before he was, I think he was actually, a, you know, like a red-blooded Stalinist, but... Oh, yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying. There were all these Stalinist scientists who were incredibly talented. <laughs> but anyway, this this guy, he was Hungarian, and this guy, uh, like you mentioned, the theory of the generative research program, one of my interpretation, which might not be the most c- correct, whatever, but his main idea is a research program becomes degenerate literally almost when you have this increasing complexity in theory, but there's no returns in empirical confirmation or even in new predictions. So you just kind of have this giant web of ideas that are used to like explain maybe every anomaly that you find, but at the same time, they don't generate new explanations for new empirical data. Um, they don't even create new predictions. So one of the reasons why I started reading about this, it wasn't because I was thinking about socialism or anything. I was just thinking more about my own real life, you know, because I'm a grad student in physics and especially when a computational physics slash theoretical physics, specifically astrophysics, there's basically, you know, like, well, there's five data points and there's like a billion theories that can fit it, you know? So there's no real like progress in that sense because there's no way to confirm which theory is true. Like, mm-hmm. if so you have this increasing complexity in theories that doesn't find its feedback into empirical confirmation and then that's a degenerate research program it's not very clear cut when that degeneration happened but as a rule of thumb and that just made me realize that all problem solving institutions capitalists have a research program you know because science or at least scientific like approaches are what capitalist privileges for problem solving there could be like administrative issues like economic policy or, I don't know, healthcare or something. And then, you know, the way capitalists deal with it is like, it makes a study, you know, tries to like look for empirical data, tries to understand it. And then... Well, yeah, I mean, it's constantly trying to update the production process and science is a tool for doing that. Yeah, but it's everywhere in capitalism, even productive. It's like state administration too. Every institution in capitalism that problem solves has a research program. So... When I see the declining rates of productivity, not first in 
you know, what are industrial sectors like manufacturing, also, you know, like even in things that don't necessarily produce economic growth, but are necessary, you know, like public health care. So you have this administrative load, this like humongous complexity increasing versus like number of physicians, you know, or number of nurses. And a normal person will like heuristically think it's like the basis of that industry, you know, and you see it in the university too. Like it's very famous, the whole admin bloat problem. So these are problem solving institutions that use quasi scientific research programs to solve their own logistical problems as well, you know? So logistical problems, if it's like administration in healthcare or something like that, or engineering slash scientific problems, if it's manufacturing sector or something. So this led me to understand like, if they have diminishing returns in their problem solving, then it points out that their research program is degenerating and becoming more complex, you know? And complex versus actually achieving results. So to me, that sign as a degeneration of a universal research program in everything. And to me, that has huge implications because it's not only about economic growth, but even about science, philosophy, anything, any human creative endeavor that's dealing with problem solving is degenerating. That's it for this week. So how'd you like that? A complexity science model of capitalist decline. Amir's doing great work over at Cold and Dark Stars. That's at colddarkstars.wordpress.com. If you like what you heard this week, consider supporting Amir's Patreon over at patreon.com slash colddarkstars. Remember, comrades, the future of the immortal science hangs in the balance of your bank account. So in that spirit, if you have any left over, <laughs> we've got a Patreon too at patreon.com slash swampsidechats. There's also a PayPal, paypal.me slash swampsidechats. If you just want to give a bunch at once. Come find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook. We even got a Twitter account now. Yeah, guess what it is? You'll never guess. How about this? I'll tell you next time. Speaking of next time, that's when you'll hear part two of our discussion with Amir, where he offers some positive suggestions for the terminal decline of capitalism and bourgeois science. No big deal.